Welcome to BNN News. It is Monday, June 6, 2022. I'm Kelly Ransom. And I'm Faith Maffedon, and we're so happy to have you with us tonight. We had a very busy weekend. On Saturday, Roslindale Village Main Street kicked off its summer farmer's market season with a bustling bash and ribbon cutting with Mayor Michelle Wu in Adams Park. Uh, this year, the market has expanded to Birch Street and hosts 40 vendors, including specialty food and craft vendors, and a variety of farms. The market runs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. until Saturday, November 19th. The Roslindale community is so special. When we first moved here six years ago, when my daughter was born, we couldn't get home because we were talking to so many people at the farmer's market, and it's still the same now. We bump into old friends, we make new friends. The community here is really amazing because it brings everyone together and just coming together. Alexandria. The Roslindale community is so special. When we first moved here six years ago when my daughter was born, we couldn't get home because we were talking to so many people at the farmer's market and it's still the same now. We bump into old friends, we make new friends. The community here is really amazing because it brings everyone together and just coming together over food and fun times and the, and the park and the entertainment just makes the best atmosphere and everyone we bring here wants to move to Roslindale. <laughs> what makes being here, being part of the market so special is the diversity. You see so many different groups of people, so many different kinds of people come here and everyone is enjoying themselves and you're able to buy different things and the, see different children, the entertainment, and it's it's just being able to be together uh, with different types of people, which makes this so special. It's so excited to be here again at the Roslindale Village Farmers Market opening day. We haven't been like this in years. We haven't been able to say hi to our neighbors because of the pandemic. So it just feels amazing to be part of this community, supporting the vendors, but also supporting our our fellow residents and getting together again. When all these humans come together for the first time in a while, it just feels like amazing energy and it feels really special. And it reminds me what it means to be a community member here in Roslindale. It's thrilling to be here once again for opening day of the Roslindale Farmer's Market. I live right down the street and it's one of the events that my family plans around every single year because the Farmer's Market is such a hub, not only of fresh fruits and vegetables, but local small businesses, community activities, kids to come here and enjoy the music performances and see their neighbors. So this really represents all that we cherish about our city and uh, very proud to have it right here in my home neighborhood. RVMS's Summer Farmer's Market is Boston's most prominent neighborhood farmer's market and sees over 3,000 customers every week. You can learn more about this week's market at rosendale.net forward slash farmers dash market. Alexandria Anaya Rubio. Alexandria Anaya Rubio. Celestine Cheney. Celestine Cheney. Jace Loivano. A somber call and response. 
On June 2nd, the names of 31 children and adults killed in the recent mass shootings in Uvalde, Texas and Buffalo, New York echoed through Center Street. Supporters of Black Lives Matter held a standout on the lawn of the First Baptist Church of Jamaica Plain in remembrance of innocent lives tragically taken in Buffalo's racially motivated attack. The vigil, open to all, was a moment of solidarity as residents made their voices heard that hate has no place in their communities. What's amazing to me is that in countries, New Zealand, Australia, where mass shootings have occurred, they've immediately uh, passed legislation that has prevented them from ever happening again. But in the U.S., I don't know where the outrage is. I'm sure people are horrified, but everybody should be vocally and, I mean, whatever way they can to stop this. Because how can we live in a society where school children are killed and people of color and doctors and whoever, any human being, and it just goes on and on. I have not read the manifesto that the shooter left, but it is apparently filled with vitriolic, violent, hate-filled language against black people. He clearly set out that day to go into a treasured market in a black neighborhood and kill as many black people as he could. Unfortunately, he shot down 10 people that day. 10 people who will never again see their families or loved ones. Brighton and its seniors had a lot to celebrate in housing last Thursday. Mayor Michelle Wu joined Boston Housing Authority, Two Life Communities, and local residents for the groundbreaking of J.J. Carroll Apartments redevelopment in Brighton on June 2nd. The BHA chose Two Life to replace its 64 aging units while expanding affordable housing for seniors. The new J.J. Carroll Apartments will include 142 energy-efficient modern homes that will support seniors and residents with disabilities in the community. Notable amongst the additions is the Pace Center on the new building's first floor. The center will offer comprehensive social services and preventative health care to residents of the Two Life campus and older adults in the broader Brighton community. If older adults don't have affordable, safe homes for to, to live in, just like, like this one here at Two Life Communities, so many times um, they may not be able to afford the housing they're in. They may not be able to find a place where they can move that is might be a little smaller and might fit their needs. Um, and we want to make sure that older adults can stay in our community. They help to build Boston, and we want to make sure they can stay here. So now you've got senior households who will have brand new units. They were living in poor conditions before. They will have brand new units and they will have daily services, whether it's mental health, health, activities, um, computer training, job training, engagement. They have access to um, an incredible array of programming now that is really going to engage every single household. And I think that's from a, from a dignity and sustainability perspective, that's just super important. Public housing, affordable public housing, and particularly for our lowest income uh, individuals, older adults and people with disabilities, deserve respect. And housing, right, connotes that. 
creating housing to embrace our communities rather than watching prices drive our neighbors out is a goal all of us need to embrace, whether you live in Boston or in any of the 351 communities in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. It is just what we, we owe one another as our neighbors and our citizens. Construction is underway and the future is looking bright for senior residents of Brighton. Rights Along the Shore by Danielle Abrams and Mary Ellen Strom was a recent exhibition at Boston Center for the Arts, highlighting the struggles to desegregate swimming sites in northern and southern U.S. locations. Kelly had a chance to connect with Mary Ellen about her work on Rights Along the Shore. Here's Kelly with the interview. Rights Along the Shore by Danielle Abrams and Mary Ellen Strom is an exhibition at the Boston Center for the Arts that highlights the struggles to desegregate swimming sites in northern and southern U.S. locations. This exhibition follows the trajectory of Abrams and Strom's long-running series titled Wade-Ins. Wade-Ins are a set of research-based projects that employ participatory practices designed to examine recreational segregation in the South and de facto segregation in the North. Today, I'm chatting with Mary Ellen about her work on Rights Along the Shore. Welcome, Mary Ellen. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So glad to have you here today. Um, I always love to start with people's origin stories of how they got to where they are. So I would love to know what was your path to becoming an artist? Oh gosh. Um, well, I, when I was in high school, I had the, I'm a video artist. I don't know if you know that, but I had the opportunity to work on an exhibition with Nam Joon Pike. And he is a Korean artist who is thought of as one of the founders of video art. And um, I was in high school at the time. I was at a, in a Catholic high school. I was a young queer kid in a Catholic high school and quite an anomaly. Yeah. And um, I had an opportunity to be part of a youth arts program at a museum, the Walker Arts Center. And I always think it saved my life. And Nam Joon did a project called Buddha Watching Television, and it was a statue of a Buddha, and it was a video camera with a live feed where um, the Buddha was watching himself on television, and it was about self-reflection, and at the time in my young life, learning how to be self-reflective and understanding the perspective of others is what was up for me. And it really impacted me and made me want to dedicate my life to the process of producing contemporary art. That's amazing. What a great opportunity for a young I know. I know. And how important it is to give back to young people and include them in the arts. I think it can be very transforming, life-changing, and can sometimes save people's lives. Absolutely, I completely agree with you. Um, so this project that we're talking about today, uh, you partnered with Danielle Abrams on. I'm wondering how your relationship with uh, her had formed. Yeah, I had the great fortune of going to graduate school with Danielle. And we had some incredible mentors um, who really brought us into a process of art making that involved social justice. Mm. And we were both very um, dedicated to producing projects with um, other, other people, including people outside of the arts, as in um, 
biologists, cultural anthropologists, um, people who are not ologists, but are everyday people who are part of communities that we think of as our guides in producing art. We like to work with communities and figure out what people care about and what they want to produce art about. And Danielle and I uh, both have a long-term interest in the legacies of desegregation in the United States, as well as what continue to be segregated sites of um, that are public, specifically um, pools and beaches, and to kind of really look at and analyze the legacies of segregation and how those are still impacting us today. Fascinating. I'm wondering uh, what the inspiration and the path to the creation of uh, Rights Along the Shore was like. Yeah, well, we did, um, we ha have done projects individually, as well as a series of projects that we call wade-ins. And you may be familiar with lunch counter sit-ins. Wade-ins were a method of protest or demonstration in the 60s and 70s to help desegregate public swimming pools and public beaches. And unfortunately, Boston was one of the last places in North America to be uh, desegregated. And we still had a segregated public beach, Carson Beach in South Boston in 1975. And that's an unusually late date. Um, Danielle and I had the opportunity to meet the NAACP youth organizer, Leon Rock of the demonstration at Carson Beach, which is a very legendary picnic uh, protest and weighed in that turned violent. And we had the opportunity to, to develop a relationship with Leon who guided us through this project. Um, we've done other projects about a segregated beach in New Orleans, Louisiana called Lincoln Beach as well as we've looked at and analyzed the process of uh, the violent process of desegregating Washington DC's public pools. Um, so we've done three projects on this topic. Do you have more planned for the, the bigger wade-ins project? Yeah, we do have a, a project that an upcoming project that we uh, were beginning to talk about in Louisville, Kentucky, um, with one of our collaborators, Alonzo Nichols. Um, I don't know if you uh, uh, know this information, Kelly, but I should take a moment to um, kind of respectfully uh, inform our audiences that uh, Danielle Abrams recently passed away. And she is um, on a, a very, I'll say is, a very formidable artist and contributor to the Boston community. And very, she was very committed to changing the landscape, uh, the cultural landscape of the Boston community. And um, she's someone who was much loved by many, many people. She gave people hope and made people feel really good about themselves and we really miss her 
thank you for sharing that. Um, I know that's really hard and it's a major loss to the arts community. So um, mm -hmm. thank you. Mm -hmm. Just taking a moment. So when people go to Boston Center for the Arts to see rights along the shore, what are you hoping or what were you both hoping for them to walk away with? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, we knew it would be springtime, so we were banking on people um, being uh, a bit hopeful or happy uh, at the change of weather um, of starting to um, kind of be in their bodies in a different way and connecting to the importance of bodies in water and um, the healing uh, powers of bodies in water. Um, we had the great fortune of being in dialogue with our former mayor, Kim Jamie, who has done a lot of work in Boston um, around our issue. Um, kind of one of the themes in the exhibition is the histories of why um, children of color have not had opportunities to learn to swim. And in recent years, the number of drownings in Boston has been astronomical. And um, former Mayor Kim Janey began an initiative for free swimming lessons for young people of color and um, has also kind of worked on uh, different measures, um, including training and um, uh, uh, making the salaries for lifeguards uh, a livable earning wage. Um, she spoke at a colloquium that Danielle and I organized. Um, we've also, uh, developed a long-term relationship with Ebony Rosemond, who runs Black Kids Swim in Washington, DC. Um, and um, I, I, I mentioned Leon Rock uh, as well, who continues to kind of work for these efforts around spatial justice or public space that is really safe for everyone. Um, so, our hope is that people uh, go to the exhibition, become curious about these subjects, yeah. and you know, join us in our efforts to make sure that um, public swimming sites that are incredibly important for health reasons, for mental health reasons, um, are available and safe for everyone very educational and inspiring. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about the project um, at large and seeing. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing that information and chatting with me today. It's been wonderful to talk about this. Um, and I look forward to talking in the future. Great, Kelly. I appreciate you guys. Thanks a million for all the good work you're doing. And we are back with Talk of the Town, the freshest offering of things to do in Boston this week. Throughout the month of June, Boston is a very proud city. 
the city of Boston, in conjunction with Men of Melanin Magic, are hosting a series of free pride events in downtown Boston every Wednesday starting this week. First up is Bopley Square Tea Dance Party on June 8th. From 5 to 8 p.m., get your bop on with Plain Jane, Dorian Blanche, and DJ Live as you dance the night away to all of your favorite hits at Copley Square. Find out more at AVeryProudCity.com. The Hamilton Garrett Music and Arts Academy is hosting a concert to celebrate its 20th anniversary and its 100th anniversary of its co-founder namesake Ruth Hamilton. You can join them on Friday, June 10th at the Charles Street AME Church in Roxbury to celebrate this milestone and African American Music Appreciation Month. The concert features the Hamilton Garrett Youth Choir, one of the only all-female choral groups in Boston. Our final event for Talk of the Town this week is the Bomity of Errors presented by Actor Shakespeare Project at Charleston Working Theater. Take four actors, a DJ, one of Shakespeare's funniest comedies, remix it, and what do you get? A hip-hop opera that moves the crowd. Old school meets really old school in this upbeat tale of mistaken identity. This Comedy of Errors remix runs through June 26th. Find out more at actorsshakespeareproject.org. Recently, Faith had a chat with Sharon Johnson, Assistant Director of Child Nutrition at Project Bread, where she oversees outreach and programming efforts for Summer Eats, a federal child nutrition program that provides free meals to all children and teens ages 0 to 18. Sharon has worked in the food insecurity field for more than a decade. Here's Faith with the story. I am so excited to be here with you today, Sharon. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, and just to get this conversation started, I'd first love to ask you, what is your role with Project Bread? Hi, Faith. Um, it's great to be here. Um, I am the Assistant Director of Child Nutrition Outreach, which is on the Child Nutrition Outreach Program team at Project Bread. And we work with schools um, during the school year and then with schools and community-based organizations um, like YMCA's and Boys and Girls Clubs in the summer. Um, to help them promote and do outreach for their school sites or school meals during the school year and then their summer sites during the summer. Wonderful. And what is Project Bread? Why, why exactly was it started? So Project Bread um, is an anti-hunger anti um, organization and we work to drive systemic changes to ensure that all people have reliable access to food. That's basically it. Um, in 1969, it was founded with the first Walk for Hunger. Um, and it's actually the first uh, pledge walk in the country. And that walk funds all of our programs. Oh, wow. Okay. And what are some of the services that Project Bread uh, provides? Um, sure. So the CNOP, as I mentioned earlier, we work with schools and community-based organizations. And basically our goal is to ensure that children have year-round access to food through the summer and the school programs. Um, and then there's our food source hotline, 1-800-645-8333. Um, it's a comprehensive information and referral service for anyone facing hunger or needing food assistance. They can call and um, get a counselor on the line and they can be walked through a SNAP application, they can be referred to the closest food pantry or summer meal site. And there's about 180 languages available. So it's a great source. Um, and then we have our healthcare partnerships, which is new. Um, it started in 2020 and it's a partnership with MassHealth to provide one-on-one -on -one support to patients with critical health issues connected to food insecurity. 
And over the last 18 months, I believe they served over 3000 clients referred by community health centers. And then we still have our community nutrition services, which is our amazing chefs program, which works with schools to help them create healthy and creative meals and support them with trainings. Um, during COVID, we were, our team worked with them a lot on virtual trainings, which resulted in about 500 school nutrition professionals learning more about how to be creative um, with their food. And then the other group, the other program is really our advocacy and policy team. And they're working with legislators and local elected officials um, to advocate for state and federal policy change. And currently they're working on a bill to extend universal school meals, which is the free meals for all um, to all Massachusetts school children um, through the end of next year. And in doing that, they built a coalition about a, of about a thousand advocates to assist in this effort. Wow, that's incredible. And uh, food insecurity, it's a very sensitive topic for uh, the people who deal with it. Uh, what would you like people to know who would like to reach out for assistance? Um, really that we're here to help and we try to make it easy for people. The hotline is confidential. Um, it's a one-stop resource for finding um, anything related to food access in the area. Um, for CNOP and for some of the other programs, you know, we really know that the community knows its community best. So we want to support local partners like schools and YMCAs and other nonprofits and their local efforts to solve food insecurity within their neighborhoods. So you may not often see Project Bread at a, you know, at a meal site because we're working in the background supporting and assisting the actual school or community-based organization. Um, we know that people trust and want resources in their own community and we want to support that. Wonderful. And you, you briefly mentioned the pandemic just now, but how has the pandemic affected Project Bread and the people who count on Project Bread? Wow, um, it has definitely affected our work. Um, we've been working nonstop to help many food insecure households in Massachusetts. Um, there are a lot of great data points but the one I think is the strongest, maybe explains it, is that prior to the pandemic, about one in 11 households was food insecure. Um, during the height of the pandemic, it was one in six. Wow. And then in October of this past year, um, it was one in seven. So you can see the work that needs to be done and because of the food insecurity continues to rise. Mm. And what do you hope to accomplish with Project Bread in the future? Um, for me personally, it's to continue to make sure that every child that wants a school meal or a summer meal has access to it and um, to assure the dignity that each child and family deserves. And that requires a, a lot of work, right? Um, in Boston this summer, we are working with Boston Public Schools, the Greater Boston YMCA, the Mayor's Office of Food Justice, um, and they are, there will probably be at least two to 300 sites that will be available where kids can find a summer meal. Sharon, can you tell us more about the Summer Eats program and uh, upcoming programs for the summer that our Boston viewers might uh, learn more about? Sure. Um, when I started at Project Bread, it was the summer before the pandemic, and I worked solely with non-traditional Boston Summer Eats sites throughout the city. Places like housing properties, farmers markets, libraries, churches, etc. Um, and I worked with each site to help them create and implement outreach plans to help draw kids to their sites. It's really hard in the summer um, to get kids to meal sites. So grants were provided. And what we learned in the end was like kind of by 
pairing meals with some sort of activity, it provided a way for a family that to access a meal with dignity and they could build it into their day, like they build it into their activity for the day. Like libraries would schedule their story time at the end of story time, Summer Eats meals would be there. So, um, and other sites did great activities like had theme days, you know, they had a, one had a theme called Swinter. It was winter in the summer and they had all kinds of activities all day and their meal was in the center of it. Um, you know, just things like we found like things like playing music and having, a, a, you know, name that tune kind of things the kids really liked and it helped bring them back. Um, and even things like the farm to summer aspect, there were, there were sites that used our grant to buy gardening kits and help kids learn more about healthy eating. Mm -hmm. um, or they invited like firefighters or a police officer or someone to come share a little bit about what they do and just participate in the meal. Um, and I was constantly amazed by how creative and the passionate work that's being done neighborhood to neighborhood to find ways to serve meals to kids. Um, and it was really wonderful to support and assist them. And that will, that kind of format will be coming back this summer because, you know, for the last two years, it was a grab and go where, you know, there was no contact. Um, so it'll, it'll be exciting to have that come back. That sounds incredible. And what are you most proud of, of what uh, you have accomplished or what Project Red has accomplished since its inception? Every Monday and Thursday at 5.30 p.m. You can also live stream or watch us on demand at bnnmedia.org. For BNN News, I'm Kelly Ransom. And I'm Faith Maffedon. Thanks so much for watching, and we'll see you on Thursday.